If you take your Bible and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 20 this evening. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. We doing okay tonight? Pastor Edgar called it out. Some of you look tired. It's okay. We can rest in the Lord together. Tonight I want to talk to you about doing battle. Have you ever been in battle? Some of you have trained for physical battle. You, you've been in the ranks to train for battle before. I don't know if you have trained for battle like those in the military. I think of my favorite colonel in the army on the second row training for battle. I think of many of you that have trained for battle in, in that aspect, and I'm grateful for your service, but the scripture is clear that we are all involved in some kind of a battle. And I don't want it to be a surprise attack, this battle that we're in. I don't know if you've ever had a surprise attack before. Sometimes you're even warned about a battle, but you don't really pay much attention to it, and then when it comes, it can kind of freak you out. I had a surprise attack this week. Friday, I was riding my bicycle with a friend, and he said, I want to take you to a new route. I said, sure, let's, let's do it. He said, now this is an awesome route. It's beautiful. We're going to go out in Amish country. We're going to ride our bikes in the country, but there's this one house where you need to stay close to me because there's this German shepherd that he thinks that we're his dog treats, and he wants to come after you. And I thought, well, okay, whatever. I didn't really pay much attention. And uh, we were riding along, and my riding partner said, okay, here we are. We're, we're at this place. You need to stay close to me. And I thought, well, we're, we're going, you know, fast on our bikes. This dog can't catch us. And I looked down at my speedometer, and we're going 17 miles an hour. And, and then out of the corner of my eye, I see this big glob of fur moving very fast. And I'm gauging the speed, and it looks like he's going faster than 17 miles an hour. And at this point, I was very thankful for the warning my friend gave to me, but I didn't pay much attention to the warning, and so he said, ride close. So I got really close and made sure that he was between me and the German Shepherd. And I realized at that moment that you don't have to be faster than the dog, you just have to be faster than the slowest cyclist. And so my goal became just to be a little bit faster than my riding partner and let him deal with the dog. It brought fear to me. It was, it was surprising how fast this attack came up on me. Even though I had some kind of warning, it wasn't what I really expected. I think we've become so familiar with passages of Scripture like this that talk about the battle we're in spiritually and the armor of God. And we've heard about it, but we act like we're so surprised when the enemy just leaps up upon us. And I want to not just warn us tonight. I'm really, for most of us, reminding us, but I want to call us to say, hey, we don't have to be living in fear. There is hope. I don't know what battle you find yourself in. Some of us are in a battle to fight to pay the bills that come to you each and every month. Maybe you're in a battle with your waistline. You've been fighting to lose some weight. Maybe you're in a battle with some friends or family members. Maybe you're in a battle with a very serious illness and you're battling for your health and you face that. But even though this battle that we're talking about in Ephesians chapter 6 may not be as visible all the time, it is no less real. Tonight I want to share with you the battle plan that is extremely important. I want to talk about understanding the battle and understanding the enemy in this battle 
in utilizing the equipment that God has given to us for this battle. In your outlines, look with me there at this first part, understanding the battle, and look at your Bibles as well. In Ephesians 6, verse 10, it says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. God in His sovereign wisdom has inspired His Word and has given us the enemy's battle plans. He's told us where the surprise attack is going to come, and we don't need to be surprised by it. We don't have to be ignorant, uneducated, or ill-equipped. We can fight the enemy because we know who he is, where he is, and what his tactics are. We, we need to understand that he has a purpose and a plan. Second Timothy 2.26 talks about his will. The enemy has a will, a plan for you. It is a plan to completely destroy you, to destroy your life, your freedom, to erase your God-given purpose and identity. He wants to destroy your marriage, your family, your influence. He wants to take away everything he can from you. The truth is, it can happen if we are not careful. We have to understand this battle we're in is very real. We also need to understand the enemy. Say, Brady, do you actually believe in a literal devil? Yes, I do. I can sense the battle with the enemy, a tangible enemy, in a very real way. I battle his attempts to thwart me on a regular basis. You do as well. You may not attribute it to that, but there's nothing special about me. In fact, as I read Scripture, Satan cannot be everywhere all the time at once. And so my guess is I've probably never been tempted or thwarted by Satan himself, but his demons, his imps are after not only me, but after you. And you know what it's like. I know what it's like to feel like there is a target on your back. It's as if there is a, a uh, sharpshooter in the room. Lining up his sights right at you, the target is on your back, and he's ready, and he's very willing to take a shot at you. It's not to bring fear, it's not to, to make you fret, but it's to understand how real the threat is around us. You and I are no match for Satan. I think sometimes, maybe out of a well-intended heart, we talk like we're going to give Satan a black eye. Be careful when you talk about telling Satan off. You and I are no match for Satan, but Scripture tells us greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And so through Christ in us, there is victory and we can have hope in this battle. Satan is very real. Ephesians 6.12 says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. 1 John 5.19 says, that this world is under the control of the evil one. See, God has allowed the enemy to have authority over this world for this time. We're living in enemy-occupied territory. The enemy is everywhere we are working, and he's working against the purposes of God. Now, I don't want to take time to tell you the specific examples of how I've experienced the oppression of the enemy, and, and I've witnessed his uh, hand wreaking havoc in people's life in very tangible ways. I could spend time doing that, but I don't want to give Satan any more airtime than what he already has. See, we're not to be experts in the darkness. 
We're not to deny the existence of the darkness, but we are to be experts in the light. We are to talk about the strength that God brings to us. And so I'm not downplaying the existence of evil, and I don't want to lift up and glorify and exalt the work of Satan. We are going to see the very strong work of Christ in us through the Holy Spirit and the the battle armor that he gives to us that is so necessary as we focus in on the light, the one who lives in us. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Not only is Satan real, he wants to devour you like a lion. Now, the only lions I have seen are on TV, on cartoons, or at the zoo. Some of you have seen a real lion closer than behind the cage at the zoo. The closest memory I have is this silly German shepherd a couple days ago. It felt like a lion when he was chasing after me. When I saw his teeth and I heard his low growl, it felt like a lion. I had no doubt that if I was slower than my riding partner, he would have loved to have tried to take a bite out of my calf. Satan, even more vicious just as real, chasing after you, is ready not to just sidetrack you, not to just discourage you. These are tools he uses, but he wants to devour you like a lion. He wants to tear you up. Anybody encouraged? Anybody so thrilled that you came to Sunday night church? The encouragement is is not in glorifying Satan, but it's to realize, yes, it is real. Don't be surprised when this happens, but the hope is yet to come, so keep listening. John 4, 4 says, but greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Jesus, on the other hand, he is not threatened by the devil. Not at all. We don't need to be afraid because of Christ in us. 2 Corinthians 10 tells us, though we live in in the world, we do not wage war against the world the way the world does. But the weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 and 4. See, the enemy and his works, they're no match for the authority that we've been given through Jesus Christ. And so I want to talk to us uh, the remainder of our time, and the, the balance of our time, about utilizing this equipment, this, this battle armor that God has given to us that no doubt you've heard about, no doubt that you may even have taught about, but we not only need to be reminded, we need to do a self-evaluation. How am I doing with putting this armor to work? Sometimes we we talk about it, we polish it, we collect it, we hang it up on the wall at home, but we never really put it into action. We say, well, things seem to be pretty calm right now. We need to always be on our guard, guarding our heart, guarding our mind. Ephesians 6, 13 and 14 says, Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, You may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the full armor of God. There's seven pieces of spiritual armor that I want to talk about tonight. The first, in your notes, jot this down. It's talking about a Christ-centered worldview. This piece of armor gives us a Christ-centered worldview. What is it? Verse 14, the belt of truth buckled around your waist. We need to be centered, and we need to remain centered upon the truth that is in Jesus Christ. The belt is what 
held the whole armor together. It was the centerpiece of the armor. It held everything in place. And, and Christ is this truth that anchors us. This spiritual warfare that is very real. The anchor of our protection against the enemy is bound in the truth of Jesus Christ. Our relationship in Jesus Christ that we've been talking about on Sunday mornings. He's the one that keeps everything in its right place. How do you view the world around you? What is your worldview? Is it a Christ-centered worldview? Or do you have Christ not around your waist as the center? Or do you tuck Him in your back pocket as something you collect? Or you put Him in your purse, something you carry around with you? You can't just tie Him on as an accessory. He is to be the anchor which everything else is held upon. I've shared with you before that before I accepted my call to ministry, I was convinced that I was going to be a professional soccer player. I did not have the talent or the drive to do so, but that's where life was going. And I remember uh, listening to my coach with full intent that this was going to be my life's ambition and, and trying to be the best defender that I could be. And I remember playing the right fullback position there for the Denver Kickers in Denver, Colorado. And my German coach was talking to me in his German accent that I can't do very well, but maybe Edgar could do a better job. And he said, Brady, when you are defending against that striker who's coming at you, do not look at the ball. Do not look at his arms. Do not look at his face. Look at at his waist. The temptation is to follow the fancy footwork. The temptation is to see the fake of the hands or to look at their eyes and they give you some clues, but nobody can make their waist lie because where your waist is is where you're going to go. Where your center is, where your core is leading, is where you're going to end up being. And this is not only a principle for sports and a, a principle for defending in soccer, but it's a principle that's rooted in this truth that what is right around your center, what is buckled right where your core is, is the direction in which you are going. And this truth, this first piece of armor that the Scripture is talking about, is to be at our very core. Another way to reverse engineer this is look at what direction you're going in your life. Does it point back to your center and do you find Christ there? Or do you find Christ as some kind of ornament somewhere else, but at your center, at your core, at what direction you are moving in your life is something other than the truth of Jesus? Where your center is, that's the direction that you'll be heading. How many of us want the truth to be at our center? How many of you really want truth? After dinner with some friends, if you've got spinach in your teeth, how many of you want that friend to say, hey, you've got junk in your teeth? Or just leave me alone. How many of you, when you go to the doctor, you want them to tell you the, the truth about the test that they ran, or do you want them just to say things that make you feel good? You see, when we understand a Christ-centered worldview, we, we value truth and we want to receive the truth. I want my friends to love me that much to tell me the truth. A friend to come up and say, I love you so much, I have to be honest with you. I see a critical spirit rising up in you, and everything that you talk about is so negative, and you find fault in everything. You don't see good anywhere, and I love you too much not to say anything. You want that kind of a friend, don't you? What do you do with truth that is so important, that leads this next piece of armor when we look at chapter 6 verse 14 with the breastplate of righteousness in place now the breastplate protects the heart and the way you protect the heart is not by rules but by the power of god's grace to cleanse your heart by faith and so the second one here is a pure heart made righteous by 
faith with a breastplate of righteousness. You can't make your heart pure by religion or legalism. It has to be done by faith. The heart is so important because the heart and the spirit and scripture are synonymous. In essence, your heart, your spirit is who you are. Everything that comes out of your heart is who you are. Proverbs says, protect and guard your heart because it is the wellspring of life. You say, well, my heart's not in it. What does that mean? Your passion is not in it. The heart is your choosing muscle. What you choose is what you are about. When people say, well, we're married, but my heart isn't in it. What are they saying? They're saying their passion is not there. Their commitment is not there. They're technically married, but their heart is not in it. Friend, we are to guard our heart with the breastplate of righteousness. Your heart is who you are. You're guarding the very essence of who Christ is shaping in you. It's this right living that righteousness is talking about, and the breastplate protects this. How do we do that? To listen to the Holy Spirit's conviction and to confess our sin, and the power to repent comes from His strength inside of us. Let's go back to this example a moment ago of a friend who tells you the truth. Say someone talks to you about a critical spirit. Well, what do you do when that happens? I would challenge you to say something like this. Thank you for loving me enough to tell me what it is that you see. I'd like to pray about that and and seriously do that. And as they share with you what they see, go back and say, Lord, I I, I don't want to have a critical spirit. Do you see this in me? If this is in me, God, would you take it from me? Lord, cleanse me of this. There is a confession aspect to protect our heart. The breastplate of righteousness protects our heart, and we want to live rightly according to God. Someone talks to you about a sin pattern rising up, an old sin pattern. What would happen if you'd say, thank you for loving me so much to tell me what you would see? Don't get defensive. Receive it. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Ask God if it is true. And if it is, confess it before Him. When someone does this and they are someone you have a relationship with, see it as them loving you, not as them condemning you. Now, don't just go waltzing up to someone that you don't have a relationship with and tell them all the things that you see wrong in their life. And don't ever go to someone and tell them what you see if you're not willing to go the distance to do life with them, to love them through this challenge. And what do you do if someone comes to you and they say, hey, I I see this in your life and you pray about it and, and you just don't see it? Let it go. Don't let it make you bitter. Don't waste time in it. That Christian is human. They're flawed. They may miss it. But friend, we need to be so concerned about right living that when we see signals of people talking to us that we receive them. Because when you're deceived, you don't know it because you're deceived. We have the truth, the belt of truth, a worldview centered on Christ. And we also have a pure heart made righteous by faith with the breastplate of righteousness. As we read on, we begin to see a readiness to spread the gospel. Verse 15 talks about this. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The foundation, your feet, made ready by the gospel of peace. How ready are you to share the gospel? It's by reading a bunch of books that you're ready to share the gospel, right? No. It's being rightly related 
to God, being at peace with Him, sharing out of the overflow of what Jesus is doing in your life. Friend, if you find evangelism to be difficult, I would challenge you not to go read another book about evangelism. Spend time in relationship with Jesus. We heard one of our worship leaders share tonight about going on this journey about being even closer in relationship to Jesus and and practicing the presence of God. I don't know if you've read the, the little tiny book by Brother Lawrence entitled Practicing the Presence of God. If you've not read it, you, you need to read it. It is awesome. It is a classic, and it talks to us about, am I practicing being in the presence of God? Because when I do that, it makes me share out of the overflow of what he's doing in my heart. When you're right with God, when you're right with other people, you have something to share. The only way to be prepared to share the gospel is to be living in the fullness of the gospel. When you really love God, He gives you the love for other people and He gives you the words to share. There's a readiness to spread the gospel. The fourth, a faith that is, extinguishes temptation. Verse 16, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows the evil one will send at you. This shield... Now, here it is. We begin to see a shield that God has before us. It's a shield that can encompass the entire body. But the problem is, many of us will take a shield and we will believe in the shield. We will polish the shield, but we will lean it up against the wall and we'll leave it there Monday through Saturday. And we don't say we don't believe in the shield but we don't stay behind the covering of the shield the temptation that the enemy throws at our way the only battle plan that we have is to stay behind this shield of faith now temptation is not a sin we talked about a little bit this morning it's an invitation to sin but you and i have to refuse it You can't hold on to the temptation. You can't harbor it in your heart. You can't give it real estate in your mind to mull over that temptation over and over again. No, the shield of faith, it will extinguish the arrows of temptation. A good litmus test to see if you have your shield of faith up is when temptation comes. It's not if temptation comes, but when temptation comes, how long do you allow that thought to roam in your mind? The shield of faith will will extinguish that, will get rid of that, will replace that thought with something else. See, if you're going through temptation, you are to pray out a four-letter prayer. Help. Have faith that God will give you a way out. When you call on Him, listen, He will give you a way out. Now, if you really don't want a way out from the temptation, you won't see it. If you're really not wanting God to deliver you from the temptation, but your plan is to fall to the temptation and then to ask forgiveness the next day, then you won't really hear God. But if you're looking for the way out, He will not only give it to you, He will encourage you. This is the shield of faith that will extinguish the arrows. Now, you don't have much of a shield of faith if you don't obey the one whom you have faith in. Hear me now. You can have all the belt of truth that you want, all the breastplate of righteousness that you want. But if you are not living in obedience, the shield of faith shrinks smaller and smaller and smaller. What good is your shield of faith if you leave the cover which it provides for you? Well, my faith is strong. I just, 
I don't always stay underneath the authority of it. That never works. The shield of faith defends against depression. It defends against doubts. It defends against fear. One of the ways the enemy wants to defeat us is to make our problems appear bigger than they really are. The shield of faith can take care of this. But if we do not lift up the shield of faith, we will miss it. Friends, I think sometimes we think of the shield of faith about some willful deed that we do, but we miss the shield of faith is to defend against these evil thoughts the enemy plants in our minds that we have no business giving real estate to these lies from Satan. I was reading about Alexander the Great this week, how his knowledge of psychological warfare was great and he would use it as tactics quite often. As one historian noted, Alexander the Great was once being pursued by a military force that was beating them, and Alexander was ready to retreat. And so Alexander had his armor guy build an armor that would fit a man who was over 10 feet tall. They didn't have a soldier that was over 10 feet tall, but his instruction was, build me a a coat of arms, some armor that would fit a man who was over 10 feet tall. And then they would leave this huge helmet, this huge breastplate along the side as they were retreating. And the pursuing military force that was going after them to kill Alexander's army would come up against these humongous pieces of armor. And they would say, no way! A helmet that big must be a giant! We'll catch up to him, but we can't, we can't take an army of giants like that. They're way too big for us. And in this tactic of psychological warfare, Alexander the Great is given credit to retreating, but also defeating by presenting falsehoods along the way. You know, the devil does the same thing. And we say, that's just way too big for me. That's way too big for God. He can't handle cancer. He can't handle my financial crisis. He can't handle that breached relationship in my family. He cannot handle this thorn in the flesh that I'm facing. He cannot handle my doubt. He cannot handle my depression. My parents are way too weird. My kids are way too off the rocker. He cannot handle this. He is way too big for God. Friend, that is a lie from the pit of hell, and it is what fear is rooted in. And God has given us the shield of faith to stand behind that will extinguish those arrows. Use the shield of faith. Trust God. Come under the covering of the shield. There's no problem that you have that is too big for God. Amen? The reason David was able to defeat the giant was because all the people looked at the giant in relation to how big that they were, and they were crippled by fear. But David... He didn't look at the giant relationship to his size. He looked at the giant relationship to the size of his God. There was no fear for him. Remember, your shield is a shield of faith, the faith in whom the one you were obeying. There's the flaming arrows of temptations of all kinds. But God is strong enough to help you extinguish those. The fifth one is a mind that is transformed by salvation. Ephesians 6.17 says, take the helmet of salvation. Salvation is, is more than being forgiven of our sin. It's being delivered from all the things that keep us in bondage. This is kind of the heart of where I think God has taken us on Sunday mornings. It's more than just getting my ticket to heaven punched. It's more than just getting out of hell. It's, it's more than just kind of having the slate wiped clean. There is this implication that things should change right now in the way I relate to people. The way that things should change right 
this afternoon. And so salvation has some implications for transformation in us right now. Obviously, the helmet protects the brain, the head, the mind. We need to be careful what we think about, what we dwell on. The enemy wants to fill your head with these lies. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Martin Luther said, When the enemy comes knocking at your door, send Jesus to answer the door. And try it. You don't need to bear the weight of these thoughts that come at you. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've met a friend in my office and they talk to me about these temptations or these thoughts or the things that are running through their mind. And, and time and time again, I want to say, don't deal with that yourself. Hand it over to Jesus. Well, that just sounds too simple. I'm not saying sweep it under the rug. I'm not saying it's, it's not an issue. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. I'm just saying, let Jesus answer that door. Invite him in and say, these are my thoughts. What do you think? Help me. We talk about in 201, if you haven't been to the 201 class, you need to come, but this is just a quick commercial for that. We talk about how living a life led and controlled by the Holy Spirit helps us do this. And often we focus on not thinking about something. Don't think about pink elephants, Brent. Don't think about it. Whatever you do over the next 25 seconds, I do not want you to think about pink elephants. Elephants that are pink, you may not think about. Chances are, right now, Brent is thinking about pink elephants. No matter how hard he's trying not to, we focus on not thinking about being depressed. We focus on not being anxious. We focus on not listening to that gossip. We, we focus on not being bitter and hurt by that wrong that was done against us. And we focus on it and say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do it. And that's not at all what God's Word says. God's Word says, hey, whatever is pure, think about that. Whatever is lovely, think about that. Whatever is admirable, think about these things. Focus in on me, and I want to displace those lies of Satan. This is the helmet of salvation. Philippians talks to us about that verse I just quoted. Whatever is true and noble, of good report, think on these things. Dwell on the things of God. Protect your mind. Sixth piece of armor gives us a reliance upon God's word to protect, to reveal, and to heal. What do you mean? Well, verse 17 says, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, God's Word will protect, reveal, and heal us. The Word, for the Word, here in verse 17, in Greek it's rhema, which literally means His utterance. It means that God utters His words to us. We know that God's Word is inspired. It's, it's His breath in Scripture. But it's more than just ink on a page. God wants to speak to us through His Word, personally, specifically, and immediately. Hebrews 4.12 tells us this. The, the paraphrase in the message, I think, gets it right. God means what He says. What He says goes. His powerful Word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or, or defense, laying us open to listen and obey. See, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. It is spoken to us by the Holy Spirit. And God's Word is spoken by us through the Holy Spirit. Don't miss this. The sword of the Spirit 
is not only to protect us, but we are also to use it as an offensive weapon. God will speak to you through the written word, the Bible. And God wants to empower you to speak His word through the the power of the Holy Spirit. And He wants you to speak it to other people. How are you wielding the sword of the Spirit? How are you wielding the word? The enemy hates it when you pick up the word. Next Sunday morning, I would covet your prayers. I'm not nervous to preach. It's what I get to do. I love to do it all the time. I'll preach every minute that someone wants to listen. But whatever we get specific about helping people have tangible handles on what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Satan hates it. There's one focus this Sunday morning, and it is how we take the Word of God, how we take time in prayer. And it's not the only way, but one way. It's not even the best way, but it's one way that we can have training wheels to say, I'm going to be in relationship with Jesus for the next 60 minutes. Help shape me, Father. I'm already sensing that Satan hates this. He's going to bring distractions. And I want you to join the battle lines with me and pray. Not that, that I do a good job. And not that even that people listen, but God shows up in a way that people have an encounter with the lamb, with the shepherd, with the carpenter. That this living word interfaces with the written word and we begin to see this sword of the spirit become a defensive and an offensive weapon in their life. Final thought tonight and, and I'll be through. This final Paul gives us a prayer life that exercises kingdom authority. Verse 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fiercely as I should. Now, I want to tear apart this prayer for a minute. We are free to pray anything that is on our heart. But there's something powerful in this pattern of prayer. I want to pray in the Spirit. What does this mean? If you've not taken the 201 class, we're going to talk about what it means to pray in the Spirit. It's not a certain outline. It's not a certain volume level. It's not an emotional tingle. It is saying, Lord, I want to pray your will to be done. Would you help me? Would your Spirit guide me to even know what to pray? As I begin to pray and I begin to see my pride come out, would you correct me as I pray? Prayer changes things. Do you believe that? Anybody believe that tonight? I'm going to try it again. Anybody believe that prayer changes things? And you and I are one of those things that it changes. One of the things that I I believe that God is putting on my heart is is one reason, not the only reason, one reason that that Christians don't like to pray, they don't want to change. (laughs) Ha ha! If you don't want God to change you, don't pray. Or don't like really pray. Just recite phrases. But if, if you pray in the Spirit... He wants to bring change to you. When? On all occasions. Well, that's going to be time consuming. With all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, what? Be alert and always keep on praying for the saints. 
I've shared with you before, I can only find a few places in Scripture that talk to us about praying for the conversion of sinners. And, and this is a good thing. Don't misunderstand me. We are to pray for the conversion of sinners. But Scripture is full of references we are to pray for one another. Why? Because if you and I are living the way that we should, and if we are manifesting the presence of God in our obedience in our life, people will come to Jesus out of the overflow of what He's doing. How much time do you spend praying for the encouragement and building up of another believer? Pray for the request of illness. Yes. Pray for the need that they have financially, relationally. Yes. But, but do you pray that they will be built up in the things of God? I need you to pray for me that way. I want to pray for you that way. When we pray in the Spirit, something happens. It's not just kind of a good icing on the cake to be a part of a church, and this is kind of a good down-home feeling, what we like about Grace Point. No, this is battle. This is a part of the battle plan as we pray in the Spirit. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. I surely covet your prayers to pray for me this way, but I want to argue that this is not just for the preacher, the teacher, the proclaimer of the word. This is for every Christian. What would it be like if, if you would have brothers and sisters covenant with you to pray that every time you opened your mouth that God could speak through you? Ha <laughs> that'd be pretty cool. I don't feel that holy, Brady. Guess what? God wants to work through your flaws. What do you mean? When you say something dumb, you will. <laughs> so will I. Hang out with me for 24 hours. You'll find something dumb that I say. If you've not found it yet, <laughs> if you've not found it yet, you've not hung out with me long enough. But we're human. We're flesh. We'll say something silly. But here's what happens when the Holy Spirit convicts us of that and says, that, that was kind of sharp. That, that was not right on point. Make it right. You know what? I just feel God convicted me of that. I just asked him to forgive me. Would you, would you forgive me? That doesn't smell like the world. That smells like God's shaping us. Even in your humanness, and God can use every word that you say to, to speak his words. When we begin to pray this way, friends, it changes all kinds of stuff. And there's more there, but we need to leave that. We'll, we'll share that another time, maybe. But... I feel maybe a little shift here at our end time. This battle plan, I'm reminded of the passage of Scripture that you know very well that, that talks about how the Lord will prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Anybody know what passage that's from? There you go, 23rd Psalm. We, we knit it on pillows. We sing it in songs. We write it on programs for graduations and funerals and all kinds of things. But I don't know if we really interface with what that means. In the presence of the enemy, the one who we're doing battle against, God wants to set up a table and let you feast there. Say, watch this, enemy. Apparently, God doesn't always make the enemy go away. Apparently he wants to feed and nourish our soul in the presence of the enemy or the people around us who we feel like they're the enemy. They're just people that, that Satan is using to, to be the enemy against us. He wants to feed you there. My prayer tonight is that God will help you and I dust off our understanding of the armor. Because I think a lot of you are wearing the armor tonight. But maybe we're not quite sure why we're wearing it. 
Maybe we've forgotten how important the belt is, how important the breastplate is, how important the shield is, how important the, the gospel and the, the, the shoes of peace are, how important the helmet is, how important the sword is. But it's wrapped up when we pray in the Spirit. He begins to shape us and prepare us for battle. Heavenly Father, Father, 